This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 15th. Today, how colleges are secretly tracking potential students online, the rise of impact gaming, and young Iraqis protesting the political system. The thing that we are trying to do is make sure that we recruit the right students for our institution. We also need to make sure that we have the right number of students at the right price. I'm Mary Chase. I work for Creighton University, which is located in Omaha, Nebraska, and I oversee enrollment and university planning. In today's world, I think that high school students are very aware that every move they make, whether it be on social media or on a website, that they are being tracked. What this administrator is describing is not an isolated case. Around the country, some colleges and universities have started using tracking software on their websites. They're collecting data on individual prospective students. Stuff like which pages they're checking out or how long they stay on them. So University of Kansas, for example, when you enter that website, they are putting a what's called a cookie which is a little bit of tracking code on your computer, which allows Kansas admissions office to start collecting a, a digital profile about you. Well, anytime a student is interacting with a college or university, uh, information is being recorded. And they're doing things like looking for, you know, is this person going to our athletics page? Because maybe that'll show that they're interested in a sports scholarship. Or is this person spending a lot of time on the financial aid website? Because maybe that indicates that they are somebody who's going to need more financial aid when they apply to the school. I'm Doug McMillan. I'm a business reporter here at The Post. Doug has found dozens of universities that are working with outside consulting companies to collect and analyze data on prospective students. But these increasingly common tactics could become a hidden barrier for students from underprivileged backgrounds. Admissions officials who use the software say that they aren't using the data in a bad way. They say that gathering this kind of information is necessary when you're a less sought-after school competing to enroll more students who can pay tuition. The top schools are doing fine, but the schools who do not have an influx of applications are getting desperate and trying to figure out how they can recruit students. So theoretically, because they've tracked this information, once you formally apply to the school, they're linking up the data that they've collected from the time that you've spent browsing their website with your application. And then they have all this kind of extra insight into who you are and what you're interested in that was not included with your application. Yeah, all of the colleges I talked to, I should say, do not say that this information directly affects their final decision on whether or not to admit you. I would suggest that It's how you use the data that can be considered ethical or unethical. However, it does affect their decisions leading up to that process. It will show their team of recruiters, for example, who are thinking about, you know, we have this list of 100,000 possible candidates for admission in next year's freshman class. It will help that recruiting team narrow that down 
to these are the 1,000 or these are the 10,000 that according to how they're interacting with our website, maybe the most interested and engaged and maybe the most have the most interest in attending our college. So that's some of the data that they're collecting, which is data that they've gotten from students browsing their website. Right. What else are they tracking? So they are also creating these predictive scores. And many of us are using predictive analytics in order to prioritize our work and our interactions with the students who are uh, expressing an interest or available to us for enrollment purposes. So they are doing this by taking a lot of data about previously admitted students. So the freshmen, sophomore, junior, and seniors who are already at that school, they are taking dozens and dozens and dozens of rows of information. Think of it like a big spreadsheet with all of the information they know about these students, including their high school GPAs, their test scores, their home zip code is a very important one, their ethnicity demographic information like their estimated household income. All of this goes into a model that's supposed to tell this university, this is what a student who goes to this school looks like. And the way in which we use it here at Creighton University is to prioritize our efforts in engaging students who appear to be a good fit with our mission as a university. And from that model, the school can then take any information they have about a prospective student, run them through this model, and they'll come out with a score saying this is how similar this prospective student is to our model. In other words, this is how similar a prospective student is to the people who already went to this school. And there are you know, potential problems with using this approach or a limitation of using this approach, which is a lot of schools you know, don't necessarily want to only attract kids who look like the people who are on that campus. If you have a campus that's, you know, 90% white people, your admission team wants to have kids who are more ethnically diverse or kids who are from different financial backgrounds. So using these models potentially is a limited way to go about and finding candidates for admission who are more diverse or who are unlike your existing student population. It sounds sort of like Moneyball for college admissions. That's what I've heard that actual that actual <laughs> example come up several times, and they're proud of that. But I think you know one of the things to put this in perspective is you know these are tools that are that were perfected in the world of business and the world of marketing. I mean, do you think that sc- your schools and and I mean your customers are becoming more comfortable with the idea that they are businesses and students are customers? You know, there are. F- Depends on who you speak to. There are a few folks who, who, are, who realize that, but there are a lot of folks who still um, uh, don't like to see it put that way. So that was the CEO of this company, Ruffalo Noel Levitz, who I interviewed during a conference for college administrators in Nashville in July. And the college admissions people that I talked to are very upfront with, you know, we are just borrowing the tools from the private sector that worked in the private sector. A lot of critics of this step back and say, wait a second, these are not, you know, profit-driven institutions. These are mission-driven institutions, and their focus should be on providing people education. So where do you draw the line in how much these colleges are willing to act and behave like businesses? And a lot of our reporting focused on that question. Well, what is the incentive for them to use this kind of very detailed data tracking 
in their recruiting and admissions process? I mean, is it that they want to raise their yield rate, like basically be accepting people who then say yes to them, that they don't want to waste resources on recruiting or accepting people that end up choosing to go elsewhere? Or is it something else? That might be one of the ways that the more selective schools are using this. Uh, For our reporting, we focused on less selective schools like Mississippi State University. They are interested in using this to find kids who can help them pay full tuition and pay higher tuition. So they were very upfront with me. They said, you know, we are scoring students, potential recruits who are out of state on their ability to pay because you want to find, this is the admissions officer at Mississippi State University. He said that, you know, this tool helps you score potential students who come from wealthier families. So theoretically, even if you don't give the university's admissions office information about your financial situation, your income, and your ability to pay full tuition and not have to ask for financial aid, they might still have that information and theoretically say that they would prefer to have a similar student who is super wealthy and that they know will pay full price rather than admitting a student who isn't so wealthy and will probably need to ask for financial aid from the university. The colleges we talked to did try to be super clear in that they are not making final admissions decisions based on this information. But but they have the information to do it. But they basically from your zip code, that's a very important piece of data. And from your zip code, when you combine that with all the information you can get on census records from a zip code, they can make a lot of detailed guesses about someone's background and, and financial picture. And even though they may not be making final admissions decision using that information, they are focusing their recruiting on kids who have more of an ability to pay which studies show that the more that you encourage people to apply and more that you focus your recruiting on people, the more likely those kids are to matriculate and to actually go to college. So the flip side of that is potentially there are kids out there who are just as deserving to go to these schools who are not getting as much attention paid to them in the recruiting process. And do students, either those who are applying or those who are just browsing university websites, do they know that their data is being handed over to these private companies? There's really no obvious way for most students to be able to tell. We did a review of the privacy policies of these schools, and out of the 33 who we found to be using this tracking software, only three really made a clear attempt to disclose it on their privacy policies. So 30 out of 33 schools really made no attempt to talk about how they were doing this, which in the world of you know online publishers and tech companies, Tracking software is fairly common, but it's also very common and expected that you explain how you're using that tracking, how how you're using things like cookies in your website. And we found so many schools, it just made no attempt to do that. And so you talked to college admissions officers about this. What did they have to say about why they're doing this? So they think that this is a more advanced way to do their job. They feel like they're strained by their resources. Uh, They have shrinking funding. Many of these schools don't have an endowment. They are struggling to recruit students. And the, the market for high school student graduates is becoming more and more competitive. So to deal with all these things, they feel like data is their best asset and their best weapon.
Doug McMillan is a corporate accountability reporter for The Washington Post. Luol Mayen came to D.C. two years ago, came to the United States two years ago from a refugee camp in northern Uganda, where he lived for 22 years of his life. That's sports reporter Alex Andreev. He was born on the way to the camp. His parents, his entire family, was fleeing the civil war that was racking South Sudan at the time. It wasn't easy. Like It wasn't just only for my family, but they were like relatives. They're like a lot of people you know, more than 300,000 people were killed, you know, on the way. Like, so it wasn't like an easy life, but it was good for us because we could wake up in the morning and not hear a sound of gun. So that gave us more hope that thing might change. The first time he came in contact with the computer was at a refugee registration center. From that moment on, he was sort of really was just like, mom, I want a computer. And his mother sort of laughed initially, like, that's impossible. What are you talking about? But it became very much her mission too. You know, his mother even told me when he was younger that he would cut boxes and sort of build these box theaters to create like shadow puppet plays for other residents of the refugee camp. And, you know, hundreds of people in the camp would gather around. And that was sort of the first moment that informed his mother, like, hey, you know, if if we are able to get him this computer, he can do something with it. He can make something out of it. And she saved up enough, got him the computer, and he became very determined from that point to learn how to use it because of his mother's sacrifice. That day changed my life a lot, like, and I couldn't process, like, what it took her to really get that $300 to buy for me something that she doesn't understand and something that I don't even understand and uh, just giving me that trust. And uh, from there, like, I got the money, I was excited, and I, at the same time, wasn't because I, I, I was thinking that if I... If I don't utilize this, that means that I've really wasted a lot of time. And, you know, thinking about that, but at the end of the day, I was like, mm, if she can do it, I can also do it and, and, and work so hard for this. You know, every day since getting his computer, he would walk to an internet cafe where he would charge it. And it was a three-hour walk, essentially. So he'd walk six hours, basically total, charge his computer. And that's where he started learning how to code. There was a friend he had from Kampala that would bring him some games and tutorials on a flash drive. And so he started teaching himself through these tutorials. You know, this is how I use Unity. This is how I do Adobe creative programs. That friend also installed Luol's first video game, the classic Grand Theft Auto. It's got racing and carjacking and shooting. Luol had so much fun playing that he decided to build his own video games. But he wanted to build games that were very different from what he'd started out playing. How about if I can use this medium to be able to, like, help people understand how to build uh, peace and conflict resolution? As someone who has been through war, I feel like if I can be able to, to make a game about peace and change the mindset of people... And that's where I got the inspiration of, like, 
I don't know what it's going to take me to do, but I want to create a video game, yeah. So the first version of Salam was a game that was played on a mobile device. And basically, you had bombs falling from the sky over this refugee camp. And then players had to try to tap the bombs that were falling and dissolve them with a cloud of peace would pop up. The next version of the game, which he's currently working on, is um, also called Salam, which means peace in Arabic. And that's a version where you're a refugee and you're running through a war-torn conflict zone. And you have to, you know, jump jump over hurdles that get in your way. You have to feed them so that they have the energy to run. You have to give them medicine so that when, whenever they are sick on the way, they, they can get more power to be able to, like, reach their destination. It's a very real scenario and situation and something that, you know, he personally was hiding from falling bombs. And so were his friends in the refugee camp. And that was, I think, just so fascinating to see that he was doing this for both a community of residents in the camp, but then also for like the larger gaming audience for anyone to sort of be able to feel what that experience is like. He initially was just sharing it amongst some of his friends in the camp, and then he posted a file of it on his Facebook page, which he said he didn't even realize whether or not it would work. It did. The game got attention in the right circles. Now he has a sponsorship through the World Bank. He has a G visa. So he's working out of D.C. and then trying to launch Junub Games, which is his, his company. A lot of the people that I know who are into games aren't necessarily looking for something out of their gaming experience that, like, makes them think more about the about current events and humanitarian issues and the real world, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's sure. they want to they want to kill the zombies. Yeah, it's escapism. So, so why would people want to play a game that is about this very real, very scary, very serious thing? It's not like people are looking to play violent video games. They're playing games that are fun, right? And so actually Game Informer is a popular monthly magazine and they have a rating for video games. Um, And stuff that they're looking for in these high quality games is stuff like graphics, right? Sound quality, um, playability. Do you feel like you're playing a video game or do you feel fully immersed in it? Are you entertained is another one. And these are things that don't necessarily have to have this violent element to it. As long as they're fun to play, people are going to play them. There are people that are they are going to like love playing this game and there are people that are going to be like, no, I'm just playing my game. So it's a big industry. And um, the only thing is for us to have the opportunity to present to them something new in the industry that we can be able to use this medium to be able to change life. So what he's trying to do now is just with the opportunity that he has is create opportunities for those refugees to get out of that situation. The in-app purchases in the game whereby you can be able to buy food and get more energy. And then uh, what happened is that actually when you actually buy food for the character in the game, you're actually buying someone in a refugee camp. So you're not just playing a game. You are like really like having understanding and also like being in their shoes and also helping them. So that's a very new kind of additional element to this idea of social impact gaming. It's not just for people outside of that community that are benefiting from it. It's actually benefiting people in that community as well. Another major element is this idea of 
building empathy. That is, I, I think, something that's growing within the industry as well, is the idea that a player can sort of experience trauma or deal with a subject as big as war in this very individualized environment where you actually become that person that's dealing with this with this trauma. As many as 90% of teens say they play video games. And with that comes the sort of opportunity for more young people to play and start building these empathetic reactions and dealing with, you know, learning conflict resolution, learning empathy. Do you do you really think that's the case that that playing a video game about about a refugee experience where you're like shooting peace clouds at, at bombs that it actually I mean cuz part of me wonders if it's like a real oversimplification of like the horrors and challenges and complexities of going through a situation like this and I wonder how much a game can really represent that. You know, most people are not living in a war-torn country and don't know the exact horrors and trauma and just, you know, having to constantly fight for your life and fight for survival. And that's something that they can at least at least get a taste of and know that it exists and people are going through this if they weren't otherwise exposed to that. So it might be reaching a new audience in, in that way as well. We know these are things that really happen. And uh, when I talk about this game and also like it's a game that was about my personal journey and uh, how my parents uh, were able to like flee a country, seeing their their relative dying and seeing the like um, even two of my sisters died on the way. There are things that we really should talk about and there are things that we really need people to really understand. These are things that happen in the journey. And for you as a player, it, it, it helped you understand that really you can be able to be part of, of their life. You can be able to save someone's life. Alex Andreev is a sports reporter. You can see more of her work in the Post's new section about gaming and esports. It's called Launcher, and it debuts today. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now one more thing. Demonstrations in Iraq. People there are protesting unemployment, corruption, and the government's failure to provide basic public services. And many of those protesters aren't old enough to remember a time before the U.S. invasion and the fall of Saddam Hussein. Iraq has been hit by a wave of anti-government protests in recent weeks. In Baghdad and across much of the south, as of now, we know that at least 165 people have been killed, more than 6,000 people have been wounded, and it's really sent the country into a moment of political crisis. My name is Louisa Lovelock, and I'm the Washington Post's Baghdad Bureau Chief. These started as demonstrations against corruption, but as they met quite quickly with overwhelming force, the protesters' resolve really hardened and the unrest really became a cry against the entire political system. (laughs) 
certainly in Baghdad, the capital, the nature of the crowds shifted in the first few days. With the protests initially centred on the central Tahrir Square, we saw a range of ages. It was mostly male, but a lot of different backgrounds were there. But as the violence worsened, the crowds became overwhelmingly young. We're talking here about a generation that's grown up against the backdrop of the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq. They say they feel locked out of a system that's been built for people with political connections. But they want jobs, they want services, they say they want a decent health system, and they want access to an education that will actually get them somewhere. The protests were met with a pretty fierce police response. It started with tear gas and rubber bullets. Then the internet was cut to really stop the videos of the violence spreading. Within days, we were seeing some of the worst street violence the country has seen for years. We witnessed snipers on the rooftops. We saw them firing into crowds. When we went out with an ambulance crew at night, we actually witnessed firsthand how medical professionals were being targeted too. The casualties were being sped out on motorcycles to a place where medics could meet them. But shortly after arriving, the security forces fired tear gas on the spot we'd been in. The medics had to leave, of course, but it's actually something that sparked arguments among the paramedics. There were people there who really wanted to stay, even amid the danger, and they wanted to treat people. But I think in a sign of really, that really illustrated just how dangerous it was for them out there, as we drove back, one of the vehicles in our convoy was shot at on the way out. This has posed one of the biggest challenges to date to Prime Minister Adil Abdel Mahdi's government. He came to power a year ago, and although as of now the protests seem to be, have been largely extinguished, it's not clear that he's really going to be able to make the reforms that he needs to stop this boiling up again in future. He's announced a new economic plan, which he says will help ameliorate the problems that the demonstrators are rallying against. But economists are questioning whether the plan, if he can even implement it, which is highly unsure, will really make a difference, or whether it's so expensive that, in fact, it will make the economy worse. At its heart, this is a generational clash. It is, in many ways, the people against the politicians, particularly the young people against the politicians. And it looks like the latter has won for now. But without any signs of meaningful political reform, it's hard to predict that we won't see unrest like this, or even worse, boiling up again in months to come. Louisa Loveluck is the Baghdad bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, we'll have a recap of the latest Democratic debate, the first since the launch of an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. That conversation will be with guest host Nicole Ellis, who's filling in for me for the rest of the week. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548.
Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.